You're listening to audio from Liberty Church in the Harrisburg-Camp Hill area of Pennsylvania. For more information, please visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org. That's Liberty with an I, Harrisburg.org. Well, good morning to you, and thank you for bearing with us um, as we're continuing to learn how to, to navigate the, uh, the moment in which we live um, most pastors, myself included, never planned to be a televangelist, so we're still sorting out the kinks of what it means to all be immediately televangelists now. Um, we weren't, plan- weren't planning on that one. So we are continuing today a series we began last week um, called The Mission of God's People. We're going to be in a couple different passages today. You can follow along with us on the screen or in your living room liturgy if you downloaded that. Over these coming weeks, uh, we're going to seek to answer the question, what is our role, what is our mission as God's people in this world? This morning, we're going to see that God's people care for creation. Uh, and this is a topic uh, that might already be um, on your mind this week. This past Wednesday, April 22nd, was Earth Day, and perhaps you participated in, in some initiative around Earth Day. And in the midst of, of, of all the difficulty, of all the pain, of all the absences we're experiencing right now, Um, during this COVID-19 pandemic. A bright spot is that actually certain kinds of consumption and pollution is down substantially uh, across the globe. Uh, And so you've perhaps seen um, pictures on the news or in um, social media feeds or something like that of cities which are typically um, consumed with and overwhelmed by smog and rush hour traffic and things like that, uh, incredibly bright and clear in a way that they haven't been for, for many decades. Uh, There was one video even this week I saw of jellyfish swimming in the canals of Venice, where normally there are boats and pollution and jellyfish are unable to be there. But even long before um, coronavirus, care for the environment uh, has been at the front or near the front of the minds of our collective cultural conscience uh, for many years. Uh, In the last half century, there have been a lot of initiatives to protect endangered species, Uh, or to reduce pollution, or to save a particular ecosystem, or to combat climate change. And I'm sure that as we we start this morning, we're coming at this from all different kinds of of starting points. Uh, My hope is that by the end of today, you will be convinced, or maybe further convinced, that caring for creation is part of what it means to live as God's people. That you'll see both, both, how this pursuit overlaps with so much of the environmental efforts that are going on in our world today, and that you'll also see how the motive and goal for God's people in this is distinct and is different. And wherever you find yourself starting from this morning, I just would invite you to to really listen, um, to really listen, to be willing to have your assumptions challenged, to be willing to to allow the Word of God and the Spirit of God uh, meet you wherever you're starting and to continue that work of transformation in your heart. We're going to look at a a few different texts this morning, as I mentioned. Uh, They'll be on the screen behind me as as we go, or in the living room liturgy that you may have downloaded from our website. They're going to be on there as well. But let me pray for us, uh, and then we will dive right in. Let me pray. Lord God, you have declared that your kingdom is among us. We ask now, even in this moment, even this morning, that you would open our eyes to see it, that you would open our ears to hear it, our hearts to hold it, 
and our hands to serve it. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God's people uh, are those who care for creation. Uh, Two big things that we'll consider with the rest of our time today. The biblical motive and the cultural moment. The biblical motive, uh, why we should care for creation, and the cultural moment, the opportunity that that biblical motive affords us uh, in this time and place. So first, the biblical motive. Why should Christians be ecologically responsible people? Why should we care for creation? The Bible actually speaks to this a lot more than you might realize. Uh, Creation, God's created order, is a major theme throughout all of Scripture. And so I'll summarize the biblical motive this way. Care for creation is a matter of identity, calling, and eternity. Identity, calling, and eternity. For one, it's a matter of identity. It's a matter of identity. God's people care for creation because we are creation. We are created beings. Uh, If you've ever heard a sermon or some kind of teaching on creation care uh, from a Christian, from a church, something like that, most run right to the calling, right to the command that God tells us to care for his creation. And that's absolutely true. We're going to get there in just a second. But don't skip past what is even more fundamental than that. We are part of ourselves, God's created order. And in that sense, we share an identity with everything else that exists. With the sun and the moon and the stars, with the plants and the grass and the trees, with the animals, with all living things. There's a unique value and a unique glory to human beings. We learn as God's story unfolds that not all aspects of his creation are completely equal. There's different value and glory given to human beings. But in the beginning, think of it this way, in the beginning, there was God, the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and there was nothing else. And then out of the nothing, God created everything that is, including us, including people. Why did God create everything? The heavens and the earth and the light and the darkness and the plants and the animals and people, ultimately, all of these things were created by God to glorify him, to display his greatness and his goodness and his power and his love. As the Westminster Shorter Catechism puts it, our chief end, our primary purpose and aim of life is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. You and I exist ultimately, most fundamentally, to glorify God. And that's actually the same goal. That's the same purpose, the same chief end of everything else. And so because of this, we have more in common with creation than we might sometimes think in day-to-day life. Psalm 148 is a hymn of praise. And it calls all creation to glorify God, to give praise to the one who made it. So listen with open ears to this book that we love. This is Psalm 148. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise him in the heights. Praise him, all his angels. Praise him, all his hosts. Praise him, sun and moon. Praise him, all you shining stars. Praise him, you highest heavens and you waters above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for he commanded and they were created. 
and he established them forever and ever. He gave a decree and it shall not pass away. Praise the Lord from the earth, you great sea creatures in all deeps, fire and hail, snow and mist, stormy wind fulfilling his word. Mountains and all hills, fruit trees and all cedars, beasts and all livestock, creeping things and flying birds. Kings of the earth and all peoples, princes and all rulers of the earth, young men and maidens together, old men and children. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for his name alone is exalted. His majesty is above earth and heaven. He has raised up a horn for his people, praise for all his saints, for the people of Israel who are near to him. Praise the Lord. An author, a professor named Michael Northcott said it this way, in reference to Psalm 148 and other psalms like it, this response of gratitude is a fundamental feature of creaturely being. The psalmist charges all things with the first moral duty of creation, which is to worship and praise the creator. The first moral duty of all creation, ourselves included, is to worship and praise the creator. And what that means is that we can't treat creation as merely a setting as a disposable backdrop on which the really important stuff happens. A lot of the students in our church prepared really hard this spring for plays and musicals and other kinds of performances. And for some of those, there were these complicated and beautiful displays and, and stage sets and scenes built. And now that those plays and performances aren't happening, uh, those, those, all that work is not going to be seen and appreciated. It's all going to be disposed of or repurposed into something else. We can't treat creation like that, as a disposable backdrop. Not if we're going to take God and his word to heart. If the chief end of all of creation is to glorify God, if we are part of creation, then we care for creation first and foremost because we are a creation. It's a matter of identity. The biblical motive is also a matter of calling. It's also a matter of calling. Follow along with me in Genesis chapter 1. Verses 28, 26 through 28, and then, then we'll continue on in chapter 2. Genesis 1, 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And then if we continue just a few verses later down to Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, we read this. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Human beings are part of creation, but a unique part of it. We are the pinnacle of it, and not just because we were the last part of it created, but because unlike any other part of creation, we bear the image of God. So everything is made by God, but we alone are made in his image. All that all that that image bearing entails. What does it mean to bear the image of God? That's a topic for another day, but notice here that there's a calling which comes along with it. God, who's the only one with inherent power, with inherent authority, grants some of that same authority to human beings. Human beings then become stewards. 
They become vice regents called to oversee what God has made. This is sometimes referred to as the cultural mandate. The cultural mandate. And I want to focus in on four actions, four words scattered across these verses where God says subdue, have dominion, and then in chapter 2, work and keep. Those first two words, subdue and have dominion, they mean to, to bring something into service. Bring something into service. They tell us that humanity has been placed over creation for humanity's benefit. We're put over creation for our benefit. The second two words, work and keep, tell us that we are placed as humanity over creation for its benefit. Those Hebrew words there for work and keep could also be translated serve and protect. And in fact, they're the same two words that are used in the book of Numbers to describe the work that priests and Levites do at the tabernacle. It's as if Moses, who's the the original writer, the author of both Genesis and the book of Numbers, is saying, recognize the sacredness, recognize the sanctity of what God has made, and then cultivate it, serve it, guard it, protect it. Together, together, that's an incredibly beautiful and well-rounded calling, Uh, one which acknowledges our shared identity with creation, but also our unique place within it. So friend, think about this. As an image bearer of God, you are the pinnacle of everything he made. You are the pinnacle of everything that God made. And you've been given some of God's own authority. He's given some of that to you to rule over everything else. What will you now do with that authority? What will you do with it? If you're going to be faithful to this calling, you will use it for both your benefit, for humanity's benefit, and its benefit. You can and should bring God's created order into the service of humanity. Things like scientific and technological development and food sources for people to eat, natural resources for people to use. Yes, that's part of it. But to exploit or to waste or to treat the earth as a disposable backdrop which exists solely for humanity, never, never. If you're a a Christian or you grew up in the church and are perhaps familiar with the Bible, you probably have heard of the Great Commission. It's where Jesus in Matthew 28 and other related passages calls his followers to go make more followers, make disciples of all the nations of the earth, baptize them, teach them to observe all that Jesus commanded. Yes and amen. That is our commission as the people of God. We're going to talk a lot about that over these coming weeks as we consider the mission of God's people. But think about this, long before the Great Commission, the cultural mandate is actually our first commission. It's our first calling right as we are created, as humanity is created, this calling is put upon us. And it's one that we share with all other human beings regardless of religion or faith tradition or lack thereof. Uh, It's a calling that is put upon all of God's image bearers. It is not, then, a distinctly Christian, but a distinctly human calling. And it's one that's never been repealed. It's one that's never been repealed. Before you and I are Christians, we are humans. It's a simple statement with a lot of profound implications. Before you and I are Christians, we are humans. And our Christianity, the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, does not usurp our humanity. Indeed, it is the fullest expression of our humanity. I mean, we worship the God who took on human flesh, who became fully human. 
And so as Christopher Wright, this author and scholar, so aptly and a little bit bluntly puts it, God will hold us accountable for our humanity as much as for our Christianity. God will hold us accountable for our humanity as much as for our Christianity. So let us never, out of some misplaced, dualistic, separating the physical from the the spiritual, over-spiritualized view of the world, let us never neglect or spurn this first calling. If we think it's important, and it is, to follow Christ's commission to make disciples, we must also think it's important to follow God's commission to subdue and to have dominion and to work and to keep what he has made. So caring for creation is a matter of identity. It's a matter of calling. It's also a matter of eternity. Eternity. And if the the calling part is the push motive, we care because God has told us to go and do this, then this third part is the pull motive. In other words, we care because of the eternal trajectory for all of God's created order. Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 19, you can follow along with me from home. Romans chapter 8 and verse 19 reads this way. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we eagerly await as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. When humanity rebelled against God in the Garden of Eden, it wasn't just humans who suffered the effects of that. All of creation suffered. We we broke and corrupted ourselves. We also broke and corrupted all that God made. As the Apostle Paul puts it here, the whole creation has since been groaning in the pains of childbirth. Creation is longing to be set free from its bondage, from its slavery to corruption caused from sin. And so thanks be to God, the scope of Jesus Christ's redemption includes all of creation. As far as the curse of sin is found, that's the same scope of Jesus' redemption. We talked about this some last week when we considered the story that we are part of. God's saving and redeeming work, which is ultimately accomplished through the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, is good news not only for you and I, the image bearers, but for all that God made and called good. God refuses to abandon his creation to the futility and the corruption. Restoration, that fourth act of the story that we're in, is restoration of this earth. It is a renewed and a perfected creation. As Western uh, American post-enlightenment people, we have hyper-individualistic lenses on everything. We see ourselves at the center. We see everything else in relation to self. What I beg you to see in the Word of God, in the Bible, is that God's salvation reaches the individual. It is for the individual. It reaches to that level, but it is never individualistic. It reaches the individual. It is never individualistic. The scope of the saving work of Christ is all creation. And we are part of that. 
as the pinnacle of God's creation, human beings have a special place in the heart of God. He speaks about his love for people in ways that he never speaks about other parts of creation. But we are not the complete scope of his work, of his redemption. And in a way that is difficult and counterintuitive for many of us, Colossians chapter 1 talks about Jesus Christ reconciling all things to himself and that you and I then are included in the all things. So how central are you, how central am I to the saving work of Jesus Christ? Very, and even so, maybe not as much as you might be conditioned to think. We're very central to it, but maybe not as much as you're conditioned to think. So this, as I said, is the pull motive. The pull motive, the future. God's eternal kingdom is a renewed, perfected creation. We get to participate with God in that work as we anticipate the fullness of it. So that's why. That's why we care for creation. That's the biblical motive. Before we move on, I just ask you to to note the value that creation care has in and of itself. In and of itself, as a matter of identity and calling and eternity, it is part of bringing glory to God which is the chief end, which is the ultimate purpose for which we and everything else exist. Let that stand on its own. Let that stand on its own. Don't don't reduce creation care down to its purely pragmatic or utilitarian forms. But then, for the sake of the gospel, let's also open our eyes to the opportunity that lies before us in this time and place. And second, let's talk about the cultural moment. Cultural moment. We live in a day where many people around us and many who might have no interest in the things of God, might have no interest in following Jesus, care very deeply about the environment and about climate change and about carbon footprints. And I don't know how you this morning feel about that. You might love that. You might love that this is a a, a buzz kind of topic in our cultural moment. You might not like that at all. You might really disdain that. I think one thing that we can all agree on is that what we're really missing in the world right now is more celebrities self-righteously lecturing us from their mansions and from their private airplanes. I think we could all do with a little bit more. I know you're missing that at home during the pandemic. You wish there was more of that. We can all agree on that. But think about this. Generally speaking, the people who are leading the charge in conservation efforts or ecological responsibility are not Christians who also take the Bible seriously. It's usually atheists or people of other faiths or or Christians who care so much about cultural relevance that they'll reject or avoid the harder parts of the Bible. They reject the parts that are offensive culturally in favor of what is still palatable or appreciated in this time and place. Now, some of that, I'm convinced, is because a lot of Christians have never really been given a robust, a solid biblical and theological grid for why we should care. And if that's the case for you, then I hope today helps. I hope today is the tip of the iceberg for you and that it begins to reorient your understanding and practices for real reasons from the word of God why we should care. But whether you already care or whether you need to start caring, the opportunity of this cultural moment 
is that as God's people care for creation, as we do what we're already meant to do, the thing that has value in and of itself, we can do that and bring immense clarity to a world that desperately needs it. We can point people to the true story of the world. We can invite people not only to act in ways that are ecologically responsible, but to look to Christ for redemption, for their own redemption, and for the redemption of all creation. So in a cultural moment where, we care, for, where care for the earth is in vogue, what is it that needs to be clarified? What do God's people need to clarify? For one thing, that there is a creator. We need to clarify that there's a creator. The world belongs to God. He made it, and he made everything in it. And so though many of the practical actions and outworkings might be the same, creation care starts with a creator. Creation care starts with a creator, and that starting point, that reference point, makes all the difference. And so let us always be clear, this world does not belong to us. And it doesn't belong to our children or a future generation. It doesn't belong to the animals and plants. The world belongs to God. As we sang together earlier, this is my Father's world. Clarify that this is the reason that God's people care and care deeply about what God made. It belongs to him. A lot of efforts to care for the earth are championed by uh, secular humanists, uh, people who either believe there is no God or consider the existence of God to be really inconsequential at the end of the day. Uh, it's a tragedy, though. It's a tragedy that Christians aren't at the forefront of these efforts because Christians have infinitely better reasons to care. Infinitely better reasons. The secular humanist view is wrong because it doesn't go far enough. It can't go far enough, ignoring the creator. It can't fathom the real gift of creation and the creator's eternal vision for it. It's like what C.S. Lewis once wrote about us being far too easily satisfied. It's not that our desires are too strong, but our desires are too weak. Secular humanism is satisfied to preserve and protect the earth for a future generation. God is not satisfied until all of that creation is redeemed, is restored, is perfected. In addition, we need to clarify that human beings are both part of creation and the pinnacle of it. Not one or the other, but both and. If you only see yourself as the pinnacle of creation, you'll exploit and abuse the rest of it. You'll forget that all of creation exists to display the glory of God. If, however, you only see yourself as part of creation. If you fail to see the uniqueness of human beings as God's image bearers, you will go off the rails on this in a hurry. Which is why people who champion care for the earth in our time and place are also, in many cases, those who champion abortion at any term and for any reason. Or who tell people to stop having kids or who champion whatever other forms of population reduction in order to lessen humanity's impact on the earth. And so we need to be really clear, that is a godless view of the world. That's a godless view of the world. It might make sense, of course it makes sense to a secular humanist. It cannot make sense to the people of God. 
The same God who entrusted his creation to his image bearers, to human beings, also called those image bearers in the same verse, Genesis 1.28, to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill the earth. It's not a, it's not a reason that we should be pursuing population reduction in order to, to care for creation. Human beings are unique. You, you aren't meant to, as, as some crazy efforts even by Christians uh, have done, have pursued over the past years. You're not meant to repent to your plants. You're not re- meant to repent to your dog. You're meant to repent to God and to repent to other people who bear his image. You're part of creation, but you shouldn't refer to the squirrels as brother and sister because they aren't image bearers like you. You're part of creation, but Matthew chapter 10, you are of more value, Jesus says, more value than many sparrows. For the life and hope of the world Don't let creation care become synonymous with counterfeit stories. Human beings are both part of creation and the pinnacle of it. One other thing to clarify, it is faith and not fear which compels us to do this. It is faith and not fear which compels us to do this. In this cultural moment, we are divided about everything and that's certainly true when it comes to this topic. With, when it comes to, to climate change, for example, there's either the fake news people and then there's the, the chicken little people. So like the whole thing is either completely a hoax or the, the sky is falling and the end of the earth is near. It's either complete callousness and lack of concern and let's not change anything about the way we live or it's I'm losing sleep at night because I'm worried that cow farts are going to make the earth uninhabitable. Is there not a better way? Is there not a better way than, than choosing between those two options? Many people will care for the earth out of fear and other people will avoid care for the earth out of fear that it will interrupt their life too much. God's people can labor and care deeply for creation without losing our minds in panic and fear. Why? Because God is not only the creator, he's the covenanter. He's the covenanter. And after the flood, after Noah and his family came out of the ark in Genesis chapter 9, God made a covenant not only with human beings, but with the birds and the livestock and every beast of the earth. What was that covenant? That he would never again destroy the earth like that. The future, in other words, the future of this earth is not ultimately up to you and me. That's the overreach of the secular humanist perspective. If you ignore or reject a present and powerful God, one who not only creates but sustains and who covenants with his creation, then of course you're going to be fearful. That's all you can be is fearful. The weight of the world, the weight of the entire planet is now on you. It's now up to you to save this earth. But on the other hand, creation care from God's people can and should be, it must be driven by faith that God will do what he promised, that God will keep his covenant. But one thing we should add about this, God's people never presume upon God's covenants. We don't presume upon God's covenants. When we presume upon God, it means we don't really understand what he's doing and what our role is to play in that. So for example, God promises to forgive our sin. He promises to give more grace. Because we know that he will forgive, 
Should we therefore go on sinning? Should we actually sin more so that, that more grace is given and created by God and given to us? By no means, says the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 6. If someone were to presume upon God in that way, we would say they haven't really understood what, what God is doing in the world and what he has set you free to, from and to. The same thing applies here. God has promised he will not destroy his earth. The end of the story is renewed and perfected creation. But rather than presume upon that, participate in it. Participate in it. Live your life, care for this earth as if your actions matter because just as in every other sphere of life, they really do. They really do. All of this to say, God's people care for creation. And by participating in this shared human mission, this cultural mandate given to all image bearers, you and I have incredible opportunity to simultaneously pursue our distinctly Christian mission, which is to make disciples of people from all nations of the earth, to baptize people, to teach them all that Jesus commanded. When you look around this world and you see how many people around us care about the environment, Rejoice in that. Rejoice in that. We should affirm people who advocate for the protection and preservation of the environment. Don't mock them. Don't mock them. God forbid we squelch something in them which so clearly points to the image of God. God forbid we do that. As God's image bearers, whether they would acknowledge this or not, they are stepping into the first commission, and they are stepping into that first commission sometimes more faithfully than Christians are. The aroma of God's common grace is all over this, is all over this desire to care for the earth. As you affirm, participate with, with people in whatever you can participate in. And as you do that, take every opportunity to clarify the true story of the world. The better motive behind creation care that is possible only for those who acknowledge a creator who acknowledge that the world belongs to him, who acknowledge that he has given some of his authority to us and who use his authority to care for the earth. In this cultural moment, we cannot simply rely on our actions to convey all of this. We can't do that. St. Francis has this famous quote about preaching the gospel at all times and if necessary, using words. This is a topic, care for the earth is a topic, increasingly so, where the clarifying words are absolutely necessary. And St. Francis, when he said that, was calling Christians to consistency. He was calling Christians to integrity of life. So be consistent. Have integrity, but use words to do the hard work of clarification. Two questions for you to contemplate as we close. First, what specific behaviors do you need to examine or change in light of all of this? How, how can you avoid waste of energy and resources? How can you reduce or prevent pollution? Are there initiatives that you can support that protect the environment from needless destruction? How can you help all of creation bring glory to God the way that it is meant to bring glory to God? And then second, who do you know in your life that you could affirm right now? And perhaps I'm thinking here especially someone who is not a Christian, but who is pursuing this human mission that God has given to all his image bearers. Who can you affirm? Go affirm and encourage some people 
for the way that they are imaging God, the way that they are faithfully living that out, even if they're currently rejecting the creator, that there's still something woven into the fabric of who they are as an image bearer that they can't avoid. Go affirm them in that. If you need to, apologize to some people for the way that you've mocked them or mocked the good intention and pursuit that is in them. And then if you really want to pursue humility, ask those people to help you. Ask those people to then help you grow in care for the earth. In that humility, in that, in that encouragement of people, no doubt you will have moments to clarify the identity and the calling and the eternity that awaits God's people. And so may you use those moments to point other people to Jesus, the one who dwelt among us and lived and died and rose again in order to redeem not only people, but all of God's good creation. Amen. Amen. Let me pray for us. We praise you, our Father, for making your divine truth real to us in your word and in Jesus Christ. And we ask now that what we do and how we live and the way that we love become increasingly a worthy response. We pray this in the name of Jesus, the one who has purchased our redemption, the one who is reconciling all things to himself. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Liberty Church. To learn more about our church or to listen to previous recordings, visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org.